Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, where you will get tips to expand your legal nurse consulting skills. Every week, you'll hear from experts from within and outside of legal nurse consulting. They will share their knowledge to help you grow. Your show is moderated by Pat Iyer, a legal nurse consultant with 30 years experience. So join our community, sit back, relax, and get ready to learn. Here's Pat. Welcome to Legal Nurse Podcast, and I'm Pat Iyer. This is the podcast now going into its eighth year, filled with tips, tricks, and techniques to help legal nurse consultants build strong skills and businesses. I'm bringing today to you Emily Dean, who is a wound ostomy continence nurse with clinical training at Emory University in Georgia and extensive experience working in a hospital setting as a wound ostomy continence nurse. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Pat. Excited to be here. The, the subject of ostomies can creep up in relation to personal injury cases, medical malpractice cases, when there are damages sufficient to disrupt our normal functioning. I thought we would start with what are the different types of ostomies that exist today? When we're looking at different types of ostomies, we can look just at the GI system in general. We start, we could potentially have a jejune ostomy, which is at the distal end of the stomach, the beginning of the small intestines. We could have a cecostomy, which is a um, ostomy located at the cecum. We could have an ileostomy, which is located at the terminal ileum, the end of the small intestines, or a colostomy. Any way along the colon um, is considered a colostomy. Um, and then we also have our urostomy, our urinary diversion um, that can be located typically anywhere on the abdomen um, that carries our urine. All right. Well, thank you for that refresher. You mentioned a couple of ones that are less common than others. So it's important for us to be aware of the universe of these. And why do people end up needing these? Many times the etiology of, of having an ostomy is related to a prognosis, um, potentially cancer related or a genetic disorder, maybe with polyps that can destroy or interrupt the flow of the effluent. Other reasons could be um, a non-cancerous mass, an obstruction, um, a stricture, disease processes like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, different types of GI dysfunctions that can lead to disruption in the gastric flow. There's also congenital diseases and disorders that infants, neonates born with require to have um, an ostomy and potentially even a mucus fistula, which something like necrotizing enterocolitis, um, where the intestines is necrosing at birth. Um, and there's quite a few other reasons, just. You mentioned different types of trauma and congenital anomalies. And it made me think of a photograph of a man whose case I worked on who was in a car crash 
he was the only one who had a seatbelt on. The other three occupants, who were all teenage boys, were thrown out of the car, one of them into a brook where he drowned. But my guy, who survived, had abdominal trauma, a seatbelt burn across his abdomen, and had a temporary jejunostomy to try to allow for some healing because his intestines were so damaged from the force of the seatbelt. Saved his life, but ended up causing some damage to his intestines. Yes, and a lot of times an ostomy potentially can be temporary um, for instances like that, where there needs to be some sort of diversion to relieve the pressure, to relieve the inflammatory process, or to provide some outlet for the effluent to, to go, to escape, um, while the rest of the body heals. Um, but there are times where ostomies are permanent, and looking at those cases, you're looking at patients that may have um, very, very severe cancerous process that involves the entire lower abdomen, the upper abdomen where they have to have removal of the perirectal, the anal area, as well as the distal portion of their colon. Um, and so when we're looking at the comparison of a temporary and a permanent ostomy, it really is related to the etiology and, and how they have gotten that ostomy or why they have it. Um, there are quite a few types of ostomies that um, are needed that can provide um, diversion temporarily, and we refer to those as loop colostomies or loop, loop ileostomy, and that's just the surgical procedure that is performed. It's not a um, complete dissection of the intestine. It is just a portion of the intestine brought to the surface and spliced to be able to relieve whatever pressure there may be proximally or even distally, um, but then there's also procedures where the part of the colon or part of the small intestines is removed completely, um, whether that is with an obstruction or a mass included in that um, to provide complete um, diversion, which can also be reversible at times, but again, it depends on the etiology. Um, and looking at cancerous processes, you know, when we're looking at different types of cancer treatments from radiation and chemotherapy, there's potential that those ostomies may become permanent because of the, you know, secondary radiation burns, things like that, that can destroy the intestine as well. Um, so just all different reasons why we would have an ostomy, why they would be temporary or permanent. And I think, Emily, of cases that legal nurse consultants may be asked to look at where there's a question of, was this something that was avoidable? Was there an abdominal catastrophe that could have been avoided and could have prevented even a temporary as well as a permanent colostomy? What kinds of things can lead to an avoidable ostomy? I think when we're looking at the patient themselves, when we're looking to make sure that they've had a timely and proper diagnosis, whether that's a disease process like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis or cancer, um, noting that their, their care is being 
done in a timely way. Um, and that medical management has been performed properly, you know, order of operations, you're looking from least invasive to most invasive. So ensuring that the provider has, has given the patient the chance to heal their abdomen in a non-surgical manner. Granted, there are the cases of an emergency situation with a perforation, a trauma, as you discussed earlier, um, and a complete obstruction that would require interventions. But there are things that we can do medically, um, you know, bowel rest, looking at different types of medications that can affect the inflammatory process, um, diet, even hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been shown to prove um, some healing benefits to to the intestines when we've got an inflammatory process. Um, I think also looking at patient compliance, of course, that's a huge deal, is the patient um, understanding of their diagnosis and, and aware of what um, they have going on, on in their bodies. Uh, another thing I would look at is the, you know, was it a multidisciplinary approach to the patient? Um, was GI or the urinary provider included in the decision-making process? Or was this just a PCP um, making these decisions or a surgeon making these decisions? Um, and then, of course, prevention, you know, a huge deal looking at was testing completed up front, was this patient having um, risk factors, including obesity or um, elevated BMI or family genetics that would, um, you know, put them at risk for having some sort of process that could lead to an ostomy. Um, and then, you know, if they do have surgery, if there is something going on um, where the intestines has an anastomosis um, or maybe that's attempted, um, were they properly tested preoperatively with a CT, with a barium swallow, with a bowel um, study, a follow through. So lots of different things that we would look at what, you know, for is this avoidable and making sure we're doing our least invasive to our most invasive, which would be the end having a colostomy or ostomy. You have brought up so many factors, Emily, for us to consider. That's a, a thorough list. <laughs> If we focus on the impact on the patient as nurses, we've seen some of the impact that people experience. For people listening to this podcast, they could have acute care experience, you could have home care experience, rehab experience, you might have seen a colostomy at any stage in its development. As a med surge nurse, I saw them fresh from the operating room. I didn't see what people dealt with after they left the hospital. Can you give us a little feel for some of the adjustments that a patient has to go through with an ostomy? And this is in the legal world, uh, some of the damages that are associated with managing a colostomy, whether temporary or permanent. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> there's quite a few, you know, psychosocial and physical adjustments that a patient experiences. Um, from the physical side, just up front, you're literally having a bowel movement or urinating, voiding from your abdomen instead of your typical routes. Um, so that's a huge change. I would say for a lot of the patients that I have experienced and educated, um, most of them 
had new ostomies related to trauma. So they come into the hospital in a very, very acute state and wake up and now they're stooling on their abdomen. Um, so huge life change, huge shock. Um, so there's a lot of grieving that goes on. You know, we're looking at the flow, the fluid stages of grief, and you're looking at these huge changes where there's anger, where there's um, depression, can be anxiety related to it. Um, and then hopefully, of course, leading to acceptance. Um, so the altered elimination, there's a lot of fear related to this um, change because, you know, a lot of patients are seeing their insides on the outside and it's not a standard thing for us to be looking at. Um, the fear of, you know, is this going to get infected? I'm going to smell. I don't know how to do this. I'm insecure about this. Um, there's, you know, looking also um, at the the potential for, you know, I came in and I had stomach pain and I just found out that I've got stage four colon cancer and obstructing mass. So you're looking at not only are you having a physical change where you're stooling on your abdomen, but you're also looking at trying to process stage four cancer, which how can that even, it's difficult. <laughs> um, so a lot of different things going on with a patient and it also depends on just the patient's cognitive level. Um, I have a lot of experience with patients that are not um, very cognitively aware of um, medical anything. So they are very, um, they need a lot of support, a lot of very toned down education, a lot of hands-on and difficult to understand. So using a lot of analogies of, you know, what has happened to their body? How has this, you know, what is going on? What to expect? Um, so there's, there's a lot of those types of adjustments of the psychosocial related to sexual and um, sexual dating and things like that. And really just being intimate with their partner. How do we do this? How, how can this happen when I have you know, this exposed on my abdomen. Um, so a lot of altered body image, a lot of um, just insecurities that, that they will have to move forward through. So once, you know, most of the time patients are able to go through that process, they're also trying to learn a new skill. Um, one of the inhibitions I've recognized with a lot of my patients that have been elderly of it's just the visual ability to even be able to see properly to utilize their fingers the dexterity potentially related to their arthritis um, and just you know going from being independent for themselves and now depending on someone else because they physically cannot manipulate um, a bag or um, care for care for it um, so there's a lot of different things and emotions and feeling ages that a patient may go through um, and looking at parents caring for infants neonates children um, that also are in this process that's a whole nother 
whole nother game. Um, you know, you're looking at educating a child and trying to remind a toddler that you don't need to pull this off while you're also trying to comfort the parent and educate the parent on, you know, proper techniques of things and what to look out for if there's issues. Um, so it, you go, you run the gamut. Um, you're, you're looking at a lot of, of things of life changes. I always try to encourage my patients that, that prior to surgery, um, you had this lifestyle and after you've healed your four to six weeks of, you know, healing, um, from your abdominal surgery, you can resume your activities. So it's not that there's a stop in your life and everything is over. Um, it's just kind of a pause and a change and adjustment. But again, you're looking at different developmental stages. You're looking at coping skills and, you know, personalities have a huge part in this. Um, you have patients that are defeated. You have patients that are go-getters that are ready to take care of it and get it over with. You have patients that this is such a surprise and shock that they never, ever thought that they would experience this. They've never known anybody with this. And then you have the patient that's had ulcerative colitis and they're finally having relief and that they're finally feeling better and they can move forward with their life. So you have a huge spectrum of different types of people and going through all different types of experiences. But ultimately, it is a huge life change and it is a huge adjustment. Um, but it takes the, a certain person to be able to move forward with it. Um, and feel confident in it. And that that's, as a teacher um, in this field, that's, that's our goal is to really, really encourage these patients um, that they can do it and that, you know, we're here to support them and that they're all the resources that are available to them. And speaking of resources, do you encounter situations where patients have trouble with getting adequate supplies? Before we continue with the show, I'd like to share this special announcement with you. Is it worth the risk? You're sitting in your home thinking, I took a program to become an LNC and now I'm ready to start. How do I get involved in this specialty area of nursing? I would love to be able to take off a day without asking permission from a boss. What is it like to work with attorneys? How do I overcome the risks of starting my business? By risks, I mean you're putting your foot out into new territory. You fear that you could make mistakes and cost everybody a lot of time and money. You're wondering, am I up for the challenge? Is it something that I should do? I'm Pat Iyer, and I built a multi-million dollar LNC business. I know that being in business is scary. What if you're no good at it? The doubters in your life may tell you the things that you're worried about yourself. And as you listen to those negative people, you say, do I really want to do this? But what if I don't take the risk? I'll be walking the halls of the hospital or the nursing home or the same day surgery unit forever. You know how many nurses have left hospital jobs and pursued new careers. They don't want to continue facing the increased risks and difficulty of clinical work. The unknown looks more and more attractive every day and so does the ability to use nursing skills for a higher level of compensation. The time has come for you to focus on the rewards of starting your LNC business. My new book, 
get your first LNC case will help you reduce the risks by giving you invaluable advice about starting and building your career. I wrote this book with your success in mind. Get your instant downloadable copy at lnc.tips forward slash creating series or use the button to travel over to Amazon for the print or digital copy. Now let's return to the show. Absolutely. Um, thankfully, there are a few ostomy companies that will provide supplies for free for a patient that may not be insured. Um, insurance is a huge factor in obtaining supplies. Uh, they have set the standard for how many supplies a patient can receive per month. So they've dictated, you know, how many they can get. And let's just, for example, say that you have a really troublesome ileostomy, a high output ostomy that's very, very enzymatic and can be difficult to pouch. And if you have trouble pouching, if you've got irritated skin, then you're going through your supplies more often. And that could be challenging when you're only given a limited amount of supplies that your insurance is covering. There's also the financial burden if the patient, you know, is not very well to do, you know, medical supplies are so expensive. So I have experienced quite a few times patients coming into the hospital, coming to the ED, just because they don't have supplies and they're needing assistance. And I, I can only imagine the stress that that is, that you have no control over this ostomy. You don't have that muscle control like you do in your um, rectum. So it, you know, it just happens. It just comes out. And the, the, incredible progression of um, the state of the bags that are out, out there now is, is wonderful. The technology is great, but having access to that can be quite challenging. And, you know, the patient population that I worked in, um, a lot of homeless people, a lot of people that don't have internet access, that don't have cell phones. So we're looking at really difficult situations of getting these people supplies um, and having an adequate amount. And part of that also is them understanding and knowing how to use the supplies as well. So it's a huge, huge thing um, that can be very, very challenging for quite a few people. You're bringing up things that I had never considered. Like, where do you deliver supplies if you don't have an address? Right, right. You know, it, it's it's a, a challenge. Um, you know, hopefully we're able to find a family member or a friend or, um, you know, set them up in some way to be able to get what they need. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're looking back at their progression um, and how did they end up with this? And was it thought about that they are in this social situation? Was the surgeon aware that they don't have insurance, that they are homeless, that they um, need help at discharge and who's going to be the one to provide for them? Um, so, you know, you can look back at different cases as 
was this necessary? Was there other option? Was there another option that, or another route we could have taken? Um, could medical, medical management have been sufficient for this patient in their lifestyle? Let's talk about the, the patient's bill of rights related to this topic, as we've been touching on decisions about quality of life and practicality and affordability and the mechanics of managing something that is so totally changing a person's elimination, lifestyle, all those things. What are the Ostomy Patients Bill of Rights? So the United Association, um, United Ostomy Association of America has um, created a patient's bill of rights, standards of care for an ostomate. Um, so anybody with an ostomy or continent diversion um, has the right to, there's a few different sections. So preoperatively, they have the right to know what their surgery is. They have the right to be marked. So preoperatively, um, a trained uh, either wound ostomy nurse or a surgeon would assess their mobility status, their dexterity, assess their abdomen and mark where the stoma should go. Um, they also have the right to be educated prior to surgery about the life changes. They have the right to meet somebody that has an ostomy to discuss what the life after having the surgery would look like. Um, and then they have the right for counseling, for um, educational instruction, and, you know, of course, in whatever language or cultural um, setting that they might be in. Um, and, you know, just understanding the impact of what the surgery will have on their life. During the operation, they have um, the right to have a stoma where that can fit in a pouching system. And that sounds pretty bizarre, but I can tell you personally, having experience with all different types of these surgeries, that there are occasions where maybe there's too much tension on the intestine, and maybe there's too much um, edema that the stoma, when they come out of surgery, is just ginormous, or there's potential that it can retract. Um, and so there's lots of different potentials, um, but a patient has a right to have a palpable stoma um, and something that's well positioned for them to be able to access. When we're looking at what that means, it's, is it in the patient's visual field? Is it within two centimeters of their umbilicus? Is it um, accessible to them? Um, and then postoperatively, what their rights might look like or what they are, um, they have, you know, dietary guidelines there's potential for ileostomies and jejunostomies to have different types of dietary restrictions. Um, they have the right to have information available to them um, regarding how to get supplies um, and resources for attaining those supplies in whatever manner fits their lifestyle best. Um, they also have the right to have the information from different manufacturers. There's quite a few manufacturers out there of ostomy products that are able to um, follow a patient for their life of their ostomy. So whether it's temporary or permanent, they have 24 hour phone service up for an on-call ostomy nurse. They do have indigent programs for patients that are uninsured. They also have different types of supplies that may be 
fitting for their ostomy because it's not a one size fits all. There's all different types of bags. Every belly is different. So looking for a bag that fits them properly um, after their surgery is a huge deal. Um, and then they also have the right to have information. I mean, I think that's a huge part of it. So knowing about the UOAA, um, there's tons of resources on their website that have different affiliate groups within the nation and all across the country, um, different cities where groups of ostomates meet together, where there's different online forums as well. Um, and then providing them with the most up-to-date educational material. So making sure everything that they're aware of is evidence-based, that they're comfortable with the techniques that they've been taught, that they have the opportunity to be taught by someone who knows what they're talking about. Um, and then for the lifespan of the ostomy, just they're, they have the right to have ongoing emotional support and um, the right to have a healthcare provider educate them and to support them. Um, so lots of different things. That's just an overview of the rights that they have, but it's something to keep in mind because this is a huge life change and this is a, a population of patients that sometimes get overlooked. So knowing that they have these rights and having um, them be aware of their rights is a really, really important thing when we're looking at caring for these patients. That is quite a list, Emily. Let me ask you a few more questions. You mentioned UOAA, and for our listener who's not familiar with that set of letters, what does that stand for? United Ostomy Association of America. Thank you. And then I have two final questions for you. And, and one of them is, we've talked a lot about the damages associated with having to manage this radically different method of elimination. We've talked about patient rights. How does a nurse become a defendant in a case that involves the care of an ostomy? So when we're looking at just basic nursing standards, assessment is a huge deal um, when it comes to an ostomy, especially fresh postoperatively. There's some challenges or changes that can occur if an ostomy is malfunctioning um, from an ischemic process that can occur within the first 24 hours of, um, of the surgery, um, that the, the stoma itself can become necrotic and black and ischemic. And a lot of times it can be a watch and wait process, but many times it can require surgical intervention to re restore that blood flow. Um, so looking at assessment, so ensuring that the color of the stoma is nice and moist and pink and red, um, if it's eliminating, um, I think part of the assessment is realizing that for a stoma to begin functioning, it can take up to 24 hours and just the progress of what happens. So starting with gas to liquid to stool, depending on which type of ostomy you have. Um, I think that part of the nursing standard of assessment also includes acknowledging and understanding the surgical um, process itself. So what type of surgery did this patient have? Are you aware of where in the colon or the small intestines the ostomy is? 
there are a lot of different ramifications. So for instance, a jejunostomy, a cecostomy, or an ileostomy, there are dietary restrictions. There's potential for blockages to occur pre or postoperatively within that six-week period. So diet is a huge deal. There's different types of medications that are not absorbable um, in the small intestine. So you're looking at enteric-coated medications, you're looking at wax-coated medications or extended-release medications that are contraindicated for these patients. You're also looking at laxatives. They're contraindicated for this type of patient. Um, this type of patient's also at high risk for dehydration. So monitoring eyes and nose, making sure that they're getting fluid replacement and understanding that it's normal for this patient to put out for a jejunostomy, they can put out 2,400 mLs a day for an ileostomy, 1,200 mLs a day, which is an exorbitant amount of of excretion that can come out. Um, so just understanding and having acknowledgement that because myostomy is on this side of my abdomen and not on this side, it can affect the type of effluent that's coming. Um, part of their assessment as well, you know, did they palpate the abdomen? Did they assess for any sort of um, uh, issues with uh, the function of their bag them itself, you know, is it producing gas? Do they have bowel sounds, um, you know, immediately post-operatively operatively doing your respiratory checks as well. Um, you're looking for signs of potential perforation. Did a bowel get nicked during this procedure? Um, is the abdomen um, very firm? And is there some sort of, um, you know, leakage occurring? And has an abscess developed? Lots of times, uh, post-operative abscesses occurred just related to the disease process potentially, but also from, um, you know, if a patient has had a perforation and they've done a lot of rinsing out of the bowel and they've had to track along the bowel to assess for any other leaks, um, there's also potential for um, nicks uh, on, on different parts of the intestines when they've mobilized that bowel. Um, so, as a nurse understanding that this is a pretty intensive surgery. So not only are you looking at the stoma on the outside, you're curious about is everything on the inside going well um, and doing okay and healing. Um, there's a lot of inflammation, pain management is a huge deal. Um, you know, with a lot of patients, you know, having mobilized their bowel, they're extremely inflamed, extremely edematous. So pain management is a huge, huge um, factor in this. And you have to be careful, of course, because you're looking at the different types of pain medications that can cause slowing the bowel. Um, advancing diet too quickly. I've seen it time and time again, where a patient is, I'm so hungry, I'm so hungry, I'm ready to eat. And the diet has progressed too quickly. And they have an ileus and then they have to go back to NG tube and looking at um, bowel rest and um, kind of one step forward, two steps back. So for nursing management, you know, they're the eyes and ears for the surgeon. So they're looking at the physical assessment. They're looking for um, any sort of change in the patient's behavior, any sort of change in the patient's pain level um, and ensuring that they're, if, they're able to mobilizing the patient as, as early as possible. Um, 
So a lot of different things fall on nursing management and failure to do the assessment, failure to acknowledge and recognize the type of surgery, failure to acknowledge or recognize, um, you know, this ostomy has contraindications um, that I need to follow dietarily and medication wise. Um, I think that there's, there's a lot of, of um gaps in care that can occur for these patients if the nurse is not on high alert. You're making my head spin, Emily, as I think about all these implications. And I know that for people watching this podcast or listening to it on Apple Podcast or Spotify or some of the other audio channels, they're going to want to know how to get your help. They've got a case involving an ostomy. They suspect the nursing care was not up to par, or maybe this was a case where the ostomy was avoidable and there was a nursing role associated with that. Or they're looking for help dissecting what the surgeon's responsibilities were. What would be the best way for them to reach you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Emily Dean. Uh, there's also my email, emilydeanplnc at gmail.com. And those are my two main methods of communication. And Emily's name is spelled E-M-I-L-Y. Dean is D-E-A-N. And she just shared with you her contact information. I know that you have stirred up a lot of thoughts in the person who has been watching this on our YouTube channel at legal nurse business or listening to it on audio channels. Thank you, Emily, for sharing just a little window of your expertise. I think if we had a two hour podcast, we would not cover everything that you know about this topic, even on a broad level. So I appreciate you giving us a small piece of what this world is like for you. Thank you so much, Pat. And for you who has been watching this podcast, you may not be aware that you can get the transcripts of our podcast by requesting them. Go to podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. The transcript is quite useful if you are a visual learner versus an auditory learner, or you've got a case coming up in the future in which you would like to be able to refer back to what Emily Dean said, for example. So sign up for our transcripts at podcast.legalnursebusiness.com, and we're happy to supply those to you. Thanks so much, and I will see you next week or in the next show, New Topic, New Speaker. This has been Pat Iyer with Emily Dean talking about ostomies. Coming up next on Legal Nurse Podcast is Jackie Mackey, who will share with you some of the tips on building your business. No matter where you are in your legal nurse consulting business, you need to hear what Jackie has to say. Jackie, what were some of the key points that you covered in your podcast? Hi, Pat. We covered how to market to attorneys, how to make the sale, how to follow up, how to overcome fear. Be sure to tune into Legal Nurse Podcast and catch Jackie Mackey's podcast. You might have an attorney client base who's stable and you think, oh, I don't need to hear about building my business. But what happens if some of those attorneys 
decide to retire. And the new firm is not interested in working with you any longer. This is information that you need to have no matter where you are in your legal nurse consulting business. So watch Jackie Mackey's show next. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for legal nurse consultants on LegalNurseBusiness.com. Pat coaches legal nurse consultants so they make more money, get more clients, and avoid expensive mistakes. Check out her coaching program at LNCAcademy.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Join our community to get notified of each new episode and to receive the transcript of today's program. Complete the request form on podcast.legalnursebusiness.com. We appreciate you and your interest.